separate government in Dublin. Excuse the Irish illustration here. Edward the Lord Carson was leader of the Irish Unionists and consistently throughout this period warned this liberal government of Ashworth and Churchill that the Unionists of the north of Ireland would never accept a government in Dublin. Throughout this entire period, Carson consistently again and again told the government that the Unionists would under no circumstances accept home rule. And consistently, the government ignored his warnings. Not only that, but they ignored the formation of the Ulster Unionist Council with Ulster Unionist associations all throughout the land, uh, which Carson, of course, was to become leader of himself. They ignored the mass support throughout the entire empire that the Unionists had got on the 28th of September, 1912, Ulster Day, when thousands signed the Solemn League and Covenant, declaring their total determination to resist home rule. They even mocked when the Ulster Volunteer Force was formed and guns were smuggled into Ulster from Germany to arm them. In fact, consistently, the Liberal government failed to take seriously the Unionists in Ulster and presumed that they would submit to a Dublin government. Consistently, Edward Carson said they wouldn't. And it wasn't until the idea was muted to the army about forcing the Unionists in Ulster to submit to a Dublin government that they realized how serious the situation had become because nine out of ten of all the officers in the army weren't actually willing to go in and fight against the Ulster Unionists. They would rather have resigned their commissions. And in effect, the only thing which averted a civil war at that time was the beginning of the First World War in 1914. Why is it that some people, no matter how many facts you put in front of them, no matter how many reasoned arguments you give them, will ever, they will never change? You can tell them simply, illustrate plainly that what they are doing or what they are believing is totally false. And to you, the issue seems utterly clear Yet they just don't give up what they believe. They infuriatingly will not change or fail to see the issues. It can be utterly demoralizing when that happens. When reading Lord Carson's letters during that that home rule crisis, you find his constant disillusionment with the government for failing to see the seriousness of the situation. With all the facts staring them in the face, they still considered the Unionists were bluffing. And it seems that Jezebel here, the wife of the king of Israel, is one of these kind of people. Consider the facts that Ahab would have told her. Elijah had called fire from heaven. The prophets of Baal could do nothing. They, for all their frenzied dancing and cutting themselves on the top of Carmel, they were left bewildered. No answer from Baal because he wasn't real. So obviously then, Yahweh is the real God. Yahweh the covenant God. What other conclusion would be, could you logically take from this event? Not to mention the fact that when Elijah prayed on top of Mount Carmel, the rain started again, the drought was over. Yahweh had answered Elijah's prayer. So obviously, Yahweh was the God who controlled the rains and was in control of nature. And the prophets of Baal had been silenced for good. But as Ahab tells this to Jezebel, In the face of all the facts, there is absolutely no change in her whatsoever. You see, what you'd expect to happen is this, 
Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel repented in dust and ashes from her false gods, trusted completely in Yahweh, the God of the, the, God of the covenant, and followed him from that time forth and forevermore. That's the logical thing to do, isn't it? But of course, that's not what happens. Instead, on hearing the report of her husband, she responds with a new, renewed intention to wipe out Elijah, to continue her ruthless policy of promoting false religion in Israel. And Ahab has nothing to say. You see, there are a few very important, important points we need to learn here in this chapter as regards the character of God. Yahweh, as I've said before, has already shown himself to be sovereign over nature. And in the previous chapter, sovereign over death. He has shown already that his word will always be fulfilled. And you see, now we see that God is sovereign in salvation. That's our first point. God is sovereign in salvation. Across the Christian spectrum, there are those who want to say that if we can just do enough miracles and great manifestations like they had in New Testament times, then people would believe. So they go after healings and they go after even resurrections in some cases and speaking in tongues and what you, all, all what you want. And they say, if people see this, they will believe. But Ahab here saw a particularly powerful miracle, yet it didn't make him believe. But then there are others who want to say, no, if we only had better reasoned arguments and more better and more professional scholarly articles and good answers to the tough questions that people had, then people would have no choice but to believe in Christ. But think of Paul in the Areopagus. Only a few people believed when he reasoned with them there. And think how Paul reasoned often with the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And look how few responded much to his great heartache as you read off in Romans 9, 10, 11. You see, God is sovereign in salvation and he gives salvation to those he chooses. Interesting at this point to compare the first two verses with verse 18. If you look down at it, I think this is the first time we're introduced to the doctrine of the remnant in scripture. God sovereignly chooses a particular people for himself and anyone who else who refuses to believe is lost. For you see, what happens when we proclaim the word of God to anyone, the message of the gospel, when we preach that message, it is as much a message of judgment as it is of salvation. For what happens when we preach the gospel is that the verdict, the verdict that will be pronounced on the very last day, either guilty or not guilty, is actually brought forward into the very present, to the here and now. And a judgment happens when that gospel is heard. For people either believe that gospel and are rescued from that judgment, or people reject that gospel and reject that message and remain under condemnation. Now, we never say that flippantly or harshly or arrogantly, but we say it as the consistent teaching of the Scriptures. No matter how many miracles we do, no matter how many scholarly articles we write, no matter how much social work we do in the community, we will never cause anyone to turn from their sin and be saved. Jesus said, John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now let me qualify all that very carefully. God is sovereign in salvation and only he can bring people to himself. 
However, that does not mean, firstly, on the one hand, that we have no need to do evangelism or call people to repentance and faith in the gospel. And secondly, it doesn't mean that we can be totally careless, totally have, uh, don't do any preparation and expect God to use faulty reasoning, laziness, lack of preparation, and lack of organization to convert people. You see, within God's sovereignty, he chooses us as his people to be the vehicle of the gospel. It's the role of the church to take the gospel to the nations. We have no ability to save people, but we do have a message which God has ordained in his sovereignty which will reconcile people to himself. The message of the gospel. And like Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, we present this gospel as an open statement of the truth. We don't use manipulation or anything to get people to believe. We present it as the truth and the sovereign covenant Lord brings people out of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. It's our duty as the church, yes, to make sure we use the best arguments we can, to make the best case we can for the credibility of the gospel. It's our duty to be the best witnesses we can by living out the gospel through social work and our action in our community and always trusting in the sovereignty of God to call his people to himself, but always understanding as well that there will be people like Jezebel and Ahab who will point blank refuse to believe who will prefer their own desires, their own sins, to the truth of the gospel. You see, Jezebel knew the power of Yahweh, knew the power of God. But like Paul says in Romans 1, she suppressed that truth. She ignored it, preferring to stay with her own idols and her ignorance, rejecting the truth about the real God. Or as John would put it in his gospel, light had come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead because their deeds were evil. Some people prefer the darkness. Some people prefer the comfortable idols to the radical commitment that the gospel requires. What about you? For Christians can just be as idolatrous as pagans can. We can set up our own religious idols and be content to follow them. Be content to sit behind excuses like, I'm not gifted enough, or that's not my calling, or it's not my time yet, to make sure that we don't show the commitment we should to God. But secondly, let's look at poor old Elijah. He usually gets a very bad press in this story. People normally assume that he bottles it. He goes from the heights of Carmel to the depths of despair as he runs from Jezebel. Yet I'm more inclined to agree with Dale Ralph Davis on this one and say that that whole interpretation of this passage basically rests on one Uh, The translation of one phrase, one Hebrew word in verse 3. Elijah was afraid. But if you look at your footnote in your Bible, you'll see that it can also be translated on Elijah's saw. And if we accept that, which I think is more accurate, then actually the entire interpretation of the whole passage changes. For Elijah doesn't run in fear, but for a different reason. Elijah saw that Israel under the house of Ahab was no different now than it had been when he first appeared and pronounced the drought. And he goes for his life out of Jezreel, off to Sinai, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Jezebel was still on the warpath, still out to get the prophets of God. The syncretistic policies of the government at that time were still going to be propagated to the masses. 
Elijah saw that what happened in Carmel had made no difference. So off he goes to the mountain of God. And it's this journey that Elijah makes that I think is the key to understanding what is going on in this story. For remember, remember who would have heard this first, this history first. It was the Israelites who had been taken captive into Babylon. They were there as exiles and foreigners in the land, and they would have been listening to this read out, this history. What would they have understood of this story? We'll go back further. Think back further to another prophet who traveled to Horeb. Think back further to another prophet to whom God revealed himself on Horeb. Think of another prophet who went through the wilderness for 40 years and was fed with bread from heaven. Think of another prophet who received the covenant from Yahweh on Mount Horeb, the Sinai Peninsula. You see, Elijah is the prophet who would come after Moses. The one Moses told Israel to listen to and obey in Deuteronomy 18. And now we find that Ahab has not listened and Israel has not turned back to Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And as Moses went to Sinai to mediate for Israel, so Elijah is now going to do the same. And as Moses stood before the people and as the covenant was made, now Elijah stands before the people and he comes to Horeb this time to declare that Israel has broken that covenant that Israel has failed to listen to the prophet. They have failed to listen to God's law. So you see, this journey is not some hurried rush, rush and running away like a, a whipped dog with his tail between his legs from Jezebel. Rather, Elijah, as Yahweh's prophet, is going to report to Yahweh that the king has not listened and turned back from his ways. Israel remains unfaithful to Yahweh and runs after other gods and idols. And I think Elijah's sick with sorrow. I really do. Because Israel will not listen or turn back. I think that's why in verse 4 he sits down under that broom tree and asks to die. Because he is no better than his fathers, the prophets before him. Israel didn't listen to them, and now they have not listened to Elijah. Even after that great demonstration on Carmel where fire came down from heaven, they will not fully repent and follow Yahweh. And the result is Yahweh, or Elijah's heart is broken. Heartbroken because he now knows his own kin, his own people are going to fall under judgment. And this episode then with the angel of the Lord in verses 5 through 8, I think highlights for us our second point, that God is sovereign even in desperate times. God is sovereign even in desperate times. You see, even when things look bad, when there's widespread apostasy from the gospel, when the church is at its very weakest point, God provides for his people and they continue as they continue in his mission in the world. Elijah was despairing, about to give up. He was at the end of his tether. All around him, all he could see was Israel's people turning away from the covenant, running after the latest and the most sophisticated and most popular idols of their day. Yet even when things look bleak, when things seem lost, God sustains his worn out, battered and bruised servant, helping him to continue, helping him to keep going. The cake of bread and the jar of water remind us of what happened in chapter 17 when God had provided for Elijah before. He had sustained him when he had taken him out of Israel. Now God is going to do it again so that Elijah can finish his work 
And I think at this time in the current history of the Church of Scotland, a church in Scotland, we can take great hope from this. When the church seems weak, seems broken, seems so overpowered by apostasy, by widespread syncretism, as people of the people of God go after the latest idols and of our culture, God will sustain his church. He will provide for them even in desperate times. His grace is still sufficient. He will provide for his church to make sure it continues to do his work in the world. Even when numbers are small, even when there seems to be no power left, God is still sovereign in desperate times. God is still sovereign in desperate times in our lives. We might be facing a mountain that seems we can't get over it, can't get around it. There's no way over this problem in our life. And it seems desperate, but God is sovereign in desperate times, and he will provide for his people. Athanasius became bishop of Alexandria in 328 AD. During his entire lifetime, the church was consumed by the Arian controversy over the deity of Jesus Christ. During his lifetime, Athanasius would stand firm for the deity of Jesus Christ in the face of terrible persecution from emperors, from bishops, and from other churchmen. In fact, at one point, he was the only bishop in the church who was defending the deity of Christ. It was that bad. It had got that low. Yet throughout these years, as he was exiled from his bishopric five times, God still maintained his servants and his church. He still provided for Athanasius as he was in, in the wilderness, in the desert. And a few years after his death, as he battled his whole life, the church accepted at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD the full deity of Jesus Christ. But finally, and in a related point, we see that God here is sovereign in history. Elijah arrives at Horeb, spends the night in a cave again, pointing back to Moses as he hid himself in the cleft of the rock. And God, as God passed by, now Elijah is going to meet the covenant Lord. And God asks Elijah what he's doing here, and he responds, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. Now he's trying to kill me too. See, most commentators want to say that Elijah here is being self-centered and being totally inaccurate. This is hyperbole on Elijah's part. And they say that, and they say that, and they point to verse 18. And they say that he's not the only one left. And they say, what about the prophets who were spared in the caves in the previous chapters? Yet none of these prophets were willing to stand up to Jezebel. And in verse 18, uh, the sense of that phrase is actually what Yahweh will do, what God will do in the future. It's not dealing with the present circumstances. Therefore, I would say, actually, Elijah's assessment here is spot on. He hits the nail on the head. The covenant has been rejected. The altars are broken down. Elijah had to rebuild it in the last chapter. Jezebel continues to try and put the prophets to death. And Elijah is the only prophet who is doing his job. So actually, Elijah is right in his assessment here. And now Yahweh, the covenant God, is going to show his despairing, heartbroken, heartbroken prophet that when things look so completely hopeless, he is still sovereign in history. Elijah is told to go and stand before the Lord who is about to pass by. And the great wind comes, and the great earthquake, and the fire. 
All of these, of course, associated in the Old Testament with the very presence of God. But this time, the Lord is not in any of these. Then comes this gentle whisper. And at once Elijah hears it. He covers his face. And he stands at the mouth of the cave. He hears the voice of God in a gentle whisper. Not in an earthquake or in fire or in a whirlwind, but in a still small voice, as some translations put it. What does that mean? What is this still small voice about? Well, I think you see what's happening here is Elijah has seen God work in great miracles, the climax of which was at the top of Carmel when he prayed and the rains came on and the drought was lifted. And he was so disappointed that Ahab did not repent of his idolatry that, and when he saw this great sign and, and the power that God had exercised. But what Yahweh here is revealing to his poor servant is that he doesn't always work in great miracles or manifestations of power. Sometimes he just works with a gentle whisper in an unseen way in the ordinary circumstances of life. Elijah needs to remember that Yahweh isn't limited to doing just great signs and miracles. He can use simple, straightforward, ordinary means to achieve his purposes, to carry out his will. He can use foreign powers to come in and invade his people as a method of judgment, as he will do. He can use evil men to carry out his will. See, God is sovereign in history. He can't be limited just to the supernatural. That would be easy. That would mean we could stand off just expecting supernatural miracles. But God is working within history. God is at work all the time in all the events to carry out his purposes. God's word continues to be heard in both judgment and grace. Elijah couldn't, he couldn't see an answer to the problems as he ran from despair, in despair from Jezreel to Horeb. There was this great problem. He couldn't see an answer to it. And like Moses, Elijah has now seen something of the character of God, how he works in history to carry out his purposes, and how nothing can stop that. And the voice then asks Elijah, what are you doing here again? And, the same, and he gives the same answer, highlighting again this continued problem, the rejection of the covenant. So we have a problem and then God gives the solution. And it's not going to be a big, powerful miracle. It's simply that Yahweh's gentle whisper will continue to carry out His will in history through three people He ordained. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram, or Syria, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, of Abel-Meloch, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. See, if we read on through the history of kings, Hazel will indeed... Hazel will indeed become king of Syria, or Aram, it's called in the NIV, and he will bring judgment on Israel. 
by plundering their towns and decreasing their territory, murdering many people as he does it. God will bring judgment on his people for their unfaithfulness to him. Jehu will be anointed king over Israel, and he will be the one who will totally wipe out from history the whole family, the whole house of Ahaz and Jezebel. He will kill them all. And he will solve the Baal problem as well. For if you read in 2 Kings 10, we see here that he lures the, the priests of Baal to the temple of Baal under false pretenses and then slaughters them all. So all the problems that Elijah had have now been solved. And not by great miracles, but by God acting sovereignly in history. Carrying out his word of judgment, but also continuing to build his church with his word of grace. For God will reserve 7,000 people, his remnant, his people, his chosen ones. Even as he carries out his judgment on Israel, God's grace will still be shown to his church. And he will bring his people to himself. God is gracious. And like Moses found in Exodus 34, when he asked to see the glory of God, so Elijah also has found the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his, his love to, a th to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Here the second Moses has come to Horeb to see the glory of the covenant God once more and be reminded that he is the sovereign one, sovereign over every circumstance, sovereign over history, sovereign in salvation. And now his servant is called to trust him and to finish his work. The word of the prophet must continue. So what's Elijah's priority then? Trust in the sovereignty of God. Train the next generation, Elijah. The word must be passed on. It must go to Elisha. For it will, be, it will be Elisha, not Elijah, who carries out this word. If you read on in the history of kings, you'll find that out. I guess there's an element of uh, Cromwell's formula in all this. You know, trust in God, keep your powder dry. God will build his church. God will judge. He will do his will and carry it out by his word. But we must play our part. We must make sure the next generation coming after us has that same word. And it's quite appropriate, I guess, that I should preach on this uh, as a first sermon, for this is part of the reason why I'm actually here, to make sure that the next generation of leaders are prepared for the work of the gospel. Elijah needed to train his successor, but like Paul and Timothy, passing on the baton must be handed on by every generation to the next one, so that Yahweh's whisper will continue to be heard throughout the generations. God is not silent. He still speaks. God is sovereign, and we must trust Him, even when that's difficult, even when it's hard to understand and even hard to believe at times. We must continue our work, pass on this gospel to the next generation, this gospel, this word of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's that gospel word that God is pleased to use to accomplish his, his purpose in the world. A word of judgment and a word of grace. It may well be just a gentle whisper, but it is the power of God for salvation and it resonates all throughout history and into eternity. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you that you reign on high, that you are sovereign over history, you are sovereign in salvation, and you are sovereign over every circumstance of our life, over every difficulty. And Father, forgive us for the times when we have not trusted you, when we have despaired. Forgive us for the times when we have failed to believe, failed to believe in you as we should. And renew us and change us and transform us that we might ever more trust you. That our priorities here as a church might be to trust you for, for history, for the, what takes place. And to train the next generation so that they too may know you, love you and serve you. For we ask it in his name. Amen.